This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. Arthur Levitt is a former chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, a Bloomberg LP board member, a senior advisor to the Promontory Financial Group, and a policy advisor to Goldman Sachs. This is a closer look at Dr. Vince Houghton, intelligence historian, United States Army vet, and curator of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. He's here today to talk about his new book, Nuking the Moon and Other Intelligence Schemes and Military Plots Left on the Drawing Board. The book looks at covert projects and technology from World War II to through the Cold War that were seriously considered but didn't make the grade. Some were ultimately deemed too risky, expensive, dangerous, ahead of their time, or even certifiably insane. He joins me now for a closer look. Vince, in the introduction, you say that this is a book about desperation. What does that mean? Well, the reason I chose the Cold War and the Second World War as the kind of foundation for the stories for this book, because there's, there's stories like this throughout all of history. But these two periods are particularly interesting because the United States and Britain during these time periods actually had existential threats. And we use that word a lot, and that word is overused a lot. But the word literally means a threat to our existence. And when we have threats to our existence, when our way of life, when our very lives are under risk, then we start making decisions that we might not make otherwise. And in this case, these were desperate decisions. These were attempts by these governments, particularly the American government, to do something, anything, that can possibly minimize or mitigate this threat from either the Nazi Germans, the Imperial Japanese, or from the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And in other cases, in times that were not existential threats, I would argue it's very unlikely you would get some of these policy proposals. What were your sources for the book, and was some information hard to get? Did you ever run into a secrecy wall trying yeah, to get more details? Yeah, anytime you're dealing with intelligence issues, you run into classification problems. And that's certainly true for these, even though some of them go back again as far as the 1940s. Um, which means as an intelligence historian, which I am, I have to be creative. I have to find innovative ways to come up with ways to tell these stories. And in some cases, this meant grabbing people who are still alive that may know stuff that other people don't and hoping that they'll talk to me uh, to try to read between the lines. Even when I have redacted documents, there are ways to find end arounds, not necessarily to make some, something public that should be remain secret but to try to explain a story in a way that you maintain the secrecy, but at the same time you at least have some kind of narrative that you can reside, provide to the public. And in this case, I try to be very honest in this book about when I ran into secrecy issues or when I ran into unknowables. Uh, and I lay those out for the, for the reader. And in some cases, I actually tell two different stories because there's not 100% certainty about which one is right, because the CIA is not going to tell us and, um, and and so I have two different versions tell of us, a particular tell us story. The one story you tell every audience about yeah. acoustic kitty. Yes, exactly. And that's the one that has two different versions. And that's the one where you have someone who left the CIA in a huff 
uh, wrote a book that was very critical of the agency, uh, and then wrote about this case, Acoustic Kitty, an operation in the 1960s to try to turn an average everyday house cat into a covert listening device. And so you take what he's saying with a bit of a grain of salt, because you do have another source, a man who's actually on our board here at the Spy Museum, a guy named Bob Wallace, who was the director of the Office of Technical Services. So he was the, if you've seen a James Bond movie, he was the American version of Q for the CIA. And he comes after the Acoustic Kitty program. He's not old enough to have been in charge in the 1960s, but he certainly had access to all the same documents and access to all the people who were involved in this program. And he tells a very different story than the other version. And so I try to lay that out for the, for the reader. I'm like, look, we don't, we don't know. We're not 100% certain. We know this program existed. We know this program ended. It's the middle part of the story that we're unsure about. And so here are the two different versions that I've heard. There's another story about an animal project that almost worked. Tell us a little bit about bat bombs. Yeah, and this is one where, uh, to, to the day he died, the guy who came up with this idea swore that it not only would have ended World War II, but it would have done it with less casualties than the two atomic bombs. And this is an idea that, that came from a very unlikely source, a dentist named Lytle Adams. And it's not super unlikely because he actually had some, in, in, some patents, some inventions that he had done, but he was on his way back from vacation in the southwest United States when he, like many other Americans, heard on the radio that Pearl Harbor had been bombed by the Japanese. And he had an instantaneous light bulb moment or an idea came out of nowhere to say, okay, I just came from vacationing inside caves and other places in the southwest United States where I just saw millions and millions of bats. And bats, of course, during the daytime, will do everything they can to find a cold, dry, and dark place, which in a lot of cases means caves, but if not caves, it could mean attics of houses or eaves or nooks and crannies inside buildings. Then he combined this thought with what he knew about Japan. What he knew about Japan was that many of these houses and buildings were made of wood and paper in the 1940s. So A plus B equaled C for him, because if you can affix an incendiary device to a bat and then drop bats over Japan, they would automatically and instinctively find a cold, dry, dark place to roost. And that, in many cases, would be the attic or eave or nook and cranny inside a wooden or paper house. So when the incendiary device went off, it would set fire to that building. And enough of these, you could burn Japan to the ground without nuclear weapons. Please tell us, Vince, about trying to end the war with Japan using a psychological operations idea, glow-in-the-dark foxes. Yeah. <laughs> so you're... Yet another animal project. And I want people to know the whole book is not all animal projects, but they're just so easy uh, to find great information about. And this was an idea that really kind of hunkers down to our deep-seated misunderstanding based on stereotypes and, and discrimination and racism toward the Japanese in World War II. We assumed that because the Japanese all were, not all, 99% of the Japanese believed in some form of Shintoism as a state religion. And within Shintoism, a fox has a very unique place. In some cases, a fox can be a good omen, but most of the time, foxes denote evil spirits. They were, they were associated with evil. And in Shintoism, foxes can be even shapeshifters and, and people that can, people, animals that can possess humans. And so what better way to scare the Jesus out of the Japanese soldier who wasn't afraid of the U.S. Marine, he wasn't afraid of bombs, he wasn't afraid of tanks, 
he would stay and fight to the death. But maybe, just maybe, if we could come up with a way to scare him at a visceral level, at a kind of a spiritual level, then maybe he would drop his weapon and run away. And so the idea of this project was, was, was devised by the OSS, the Officer Strategic Services, the precursor to the CIA. And they thought, what if we took foxes, real live foxes, and we spray painted them with luminescent day glow, glow in the dark paint, so that when they went up on the beaches at night, there would be glowing spiritual looking foxes that could be sent in ahead of the Marines. And hopefully the Japanese soldier will freak out, drop his gun and run away, and then we can take these islands one by one without firing a shot. The problem, however, that they didn't realize, and I don't know how, maybe they just got excited about the idea, was that they weren't going to parachute in the foxes, which would have been kind of cool if they did, but that wasn't the plan. The plan was the foxes would arrive on the islands the same way the Marines would, and that they'd be dropped off on a boat and they'd wait up on the shore. And somebody, and we don't know who, Somebody had the question and, and said, okay, well, won't these foxes have their paint washed off by the time they get to the beaches? Because, of course, you know, we'd come up with glow-in-the-dark paint, but this is the 1940s, so it wasn't waterproof glow-in-the-dark paint. And that could have been a problem. Then you would just have normal foxes running around on the beach, which probably wouldn't have the same psychological effect as the glow-in-the-dark ones. And... Regardless, the OSS wasn't deterred. They figured that this would be uh, – that they could get beyond that somehow. So they actually did a test of these foxes in Central Park in the middle of the war. They spray-painted foxes glow in the dark paint. They released them into Central Park, and it scared the hell out of New Yorkers. There's a, a wonderful news article. Talk about sources. There's a wonderful newspaper article that talked about this, about how there were glowing foxes running through Central Park. And the program was eventually scrapped. Um, mainly because of the two atomic bombs, because the idea that the war could be ended much, much faster than doing island hopping all the way to the Japanese mainland. And we didn't need to anymore because we could end the war, you know, in a very particular way without sacrificing the hundreds of thousands, potentially, Americans to try to take Japan proper. You write about chemist Stanley Lovell, who signed up to contribute when the United States joined the Second World War. He was put in charge of the Office of Research and Development, and you write about the many ideas he had to stop Hitler. Tell us about the plot that involved spiked flower pots and the Pope. <laughs> yeah, so this, <laughs> this one was one of these ideas that never even got close to the drawing board. Um, there were multiple things involving the, the Pope. One of them was to try to smuggle a chemical inside the water of the flowers that would be kind of the centerpiece of a table during a meeting of Hitler and Mussolini and some of the top Nazi leadership with the idea that this would make them blind. This would, would cause them uh, to, to seep, the, the chemical would seep into their eyes and destroy their optic nerve and they would go blind. Now this would be combined with the Pope making a papal pronouncement that God had smited Hitler and Mussolini for their their evil ways uh, and by making them go blind. I guess it's an old adage of the whole, you'll go blind if you keep doing that, other things. Um, but the idea behind it was to get the Pope to lie 
um, and to come up with this pronouncement. And, and of course, the Germans weren't going to. The Germans were not predominantly Catholic, but the Italians certainly were. And this could be a way to knock Italy out of the war if they thought that Mussolini and Hitler were were literally smited by God by them going blind. And and so that was an idea that probably was thrown around within OSS headquarters. Maybe they even toyed with the idea, but it never really got beyond that point. Tell us, Dr. Houghton, the story that references the title of your book, Nuking the Moon. Yeah, this is an extraordinary story. Um, and if you really want to talk about how afraid people were, this is really ground zero for this. This is a story that comes right on the heels of the launch of Sputnik, the first artificial anything launched by men into space. And of course, the Soviets were the first to get something into space in 1957. And this really was really problematic for several reasons. One is that Sputnik was shot into space on top of a missile that could easily be used or was intended to be used as an ICBM, as a way to launch nuclear weapons to the United States. But more importantly for the broader diplomatic scope of the Cold War, what Sputnik did was to beat us at our own game. The United States had always been the leader in science and technology. We'd invented everything worth inventing during the 20th century, with few exceptions. And the whole world looked to us as being the scientific and technological leader, and that mattered during the Cold War, where the developing world, Latin America, Africa, East Asia, was choosing who to follow, was choosing what side they wanted to belong to, the United States and the Eastern or the Western Bloc and, or the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc. And science and technology played a role in this. The idea was if you were a developing country, you wanted to join it with a country that actually had the greatest scientists and inventors and engineers because that's how you went from a developing country to a developed country. And the Soviets all of a sudden looked as though they had the better people. So we had to reclaim this very quickly. We had to show the world that we were really boss. And the idea was, and the Air Force came up with this plan, let's detonate a multi-megaton thermonuclear weapon on the moon so that the entire Earth all at once could watch the United States was still the top dog on the block. You write that the movie The Day After is the reason for who you are today yeah. and also influenced Ronald Reagan. Tell us about that. I study nuclear weapons. I, I study intelligence in nuclear weapons, and that's something that I've done now for all of my adult life and certainly um, very informally when I was younger. Uh, and it all started when I was seven years old, and my parents made a very poor parenting decision by letting me stay up way past my bedtime to watch a TV movie in 1983 called The Day After. And this was a, a movie that if you were alive and you remember it, you'll know why it had such a huge impact on certainly a seven-year-old, but on most people. Um, Ronald Reagan was one, too, that wrote in his diary how impactful that film was. If you don't know the basics, it's essentially it's World War III from the viewpoint of Manhattan, Kansas. So it's right in the middle of the United States. It's not a coastal city. It's, hey, no matter where you live, no matter where you are, you're going to get touched by this. And that really warped my my sense of the world around me, and it made me fascinated with nuclear weapons. And it made me really want to understand what made them work from a scientific perspective, but also what made them so unique. I mean, this is a weapon system that really changed the way we looked at the world. Instantaneously, everyone could die tomorrow. That's a big change. And it really made us refocus our strategy about how we dealt with the world. And what was most fascinating to me, and now this is using my hindsight, was the fact that 
the most devastating and horrible weapon ever created by human beings is what kept us out of World War III. It's what prevented us from fighting another war that killed millions and millions of people. So it was really this kind of wonderful dichotomy. It was this really weird dynamic that made me so infatuated, for lack of a better word, with these weapons. And so my specialty is nuclear intelligence, and, and that's what I've been focusing on. That's, that's a big chunk of this book, focuses on that as well. Um, incidentally, I've got another book coming out in September that focuses exclusively on that. Uh, and so I can really kind of chalk it back to my parents deciding to not make me go to bed in 1983 and let me watch this movie, because that's real, that what's what guided the rest of my life. Now, you remind us in your book that in the 2016 election, Russian intelligence convinced a huge chunk of the American population that a local D.C. pizza place had a child sex slave ring in the basement. How concerned are you about the easy access to minds that social media offers to anyone, not just governments? Well, that's the, kind of the big challenge now, the 21st century, is, is information. It's so... If you look back at warfare fought in the past, I mean, deception and disinformation played a huge role. Uh, it's, it's been a technique and a strategy of intelligence agencies and governments going back to the beginning of time. I mean, you look at the stories of the Trojan horse and every, you know, even stuff beyond that. There's biblical stories of deception and disinformation. But now it's so much easier to dissipate. It's so much easier to get people to see your information it used to be you'd create flyers or, you know, playing cards, and then you had to drop them over areas and airdrop them so that people maybe would pick them up and read them. Now with the click of a mouse, you can send your deception, your disinformation out to a billion people. Vince, you write that the good news is that none of the ideas in this book ever came to fruition. Are we just lucky, or <laughs> is there a process in place that should make us feel better about all of this experimentation? No, I, 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 this book is not going to make you feel better about life. Uh, there, are all, there are very few instances in here where somebody stood up and said, no, 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 we shouldn't do this. In most cases, these programs were canceled because of superseding events. A technology was canceled because a better technology came out. Or a particular operation or plot was canceled because the war ended, because nuclear weapons worked, because someone decided that um, something would be better, not necessarily that this was bad. Uh, and that really kind of, in many ways, shook me to my core. And that's, I had no intention, actually, you talked about the introduction. I had no intention of writing an, a kind of a meaningful introduction. It was just going to be a bunch of chapters of fun stories. And then I realized I kind of had to. I kind of had to find a way to explain why all these plots almost happened and why accidentally some of them didn't and only because of happenstance that some of these don't, don't happen. And that's where you kind of get this, this argument about desperation. And that's where perhaps we can feel a little bit better about ourselves because we're not in that world right now to where we have an existential threat. I mean, there are a couple. I mean, Russia technically is an existential threat because of their nuclear weapons capability. Climate change is going to become an existential threat really soon. So maybe we'll start thinking about new and innovative ways that might work that can help out with that. And you could argue that we're an existential threat to ourselves. You want to get really metaphysical. Uh, and, and so that's an instance where we are in a position today, hopefully, where we're not going to fall for this stuff. We're not going to decide to do these kind of programs. And we won't need someone to step up 
and prevent this from happening. Um, that's my hope. That's where I can feel a little uplifted about it. Um, but I'm not, I mean, I know human nature, so I'm not necessarily uh, feeling great and optimistic, but I, and I don't think anyone really will be once they read this. Uh, but hopefully you can laugh along the way at the kind of human foibles and laugh at kind of ourselves today. How did you become the curator of the spy museum? Well, I have a unique set of skills <laughs> that brought kind of came together uh, in, a, in a very specific way. Um, I, I, I worked with both military and civilian intelligence agencies in several capacities uh, back in the 90s in the Balkans, which gave me some practical experience, practitioner experience. And then I have a Ph.D. in intelligence history and kind of this, the academic background combined with the, the practical experience made me somewhat uniquely qualified. Uh, and I just kind of came around at the right time uh, where about five and a half years ago we were looking, the, we the museum was looking for someone to, with a science and technology background, which I have, uh, to help you know, be a part of the rebuilding of the museum. The museum itself just moved to a new location in Washington, and we just reopened about a couple weeks ago. Uh, and there's a lot of new and innovative science and technology in the museum, and I, I think I played a pretty big role in that. Um, and so it just kind of came together. Of the many stories that we haven't had time to deal with today, do you have a favorite to share that I missed? I mean, I'm, I'm from South Florida originally. Um, as I mentioned in the book several times. Uh, and so I've been through 12 hurricanes in my life, and I always appreciate someone doing anything to try to make those less damaging, not necessarily the plan that's in the book. Uh, but I get it. I appreciate what was tried. In this case, um, there was an attempt, or at least an idea, to try to at least redirect hurricanes, but at best to destroy hurricanes using nuclear weapons in the 1960s. Um, if anyone thinks that's absolutely crazy, it was. Um, the uh, average hurricane has enough strength of like thousands of even our strongest nuclear weapons, but there was a, a plan by a, a, an Air Force meteorologist to try to use nuclear weapons to try to divert hurricanes, to try to push them north so that their, um, their direction would change before they hit land. The problem in the end, of course, was that the only way to actually test this was to actually explode a nuclear weapon inside a hurricane. And of course, if it fails, then you have a 200-mile-an-hour circulating radioactive hurricane instead of just a normal one. And no one really wanted to take the chance of that happening. You ask in the book, could ideas as absurd, dangerous, and outright abominable be funded and explored now? What's your answer? And is there an agency of out-of-the-box thinking today? Yeah, well, I, I think that no one worth their weight who's working for a government agency uh, at that level, if they're not thinking in new and innovative ways, they're not doing their jobs. And not necessarily these innovative ways, uh, but these innovative ways are only ridiculous because of hindsight, because we realize how ridiculous they were. The ones that worked like the building of the SR-71 spy plane, for instance, or the building of the Internet. The Internet was considered a wackadoodle idea when ARPA decided to kind of diddle around with it back a couple decades ago. And it was one that, like, oh, you're just wasting money. But, of course, today <laughs> we know how important it was. And, and I hope that there are people within intelligence agencies in the Pentagon here in the United States who are doing ideas like this or coming up or brainstorming new and innovative ways to 
to fight wars, new and innovative ways to do intelligence work, new and innovative ways to prevent war, because that's what they're paid to do. I mean, there's hard problems that need to be solved, and there's usually no real easy way to do it. And so we need people who are thinking way, way, way outside the box. But we also need people who are there to say, no, no, you went too far. Let's take a step back. We're not going to go this direction. And you don't see a lot of those throughout history. Uh, but my, So my hope is there's two things going on. One is there's people being really creative, people thinking way outside the box. But two, that there are people there, when they get a little too far, that can bring them on back and say, no, we're not going to go that direction. We're not that kind of people. He's the historian and curator of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., who just published a history of the desperate and outlandish military intelligence schemes that thankfully never became operational, called Nuking the Moon. If you want more spy stories, he's also the host and creative director of the museum's podcast called SpyCast, which reaches a national and international audience, over three and a half million listeners each year. Dr. Vince Houghton, thanks for joining us. By the way, if you have comments about the show or suggestions for topics, please email me at a closer look at Bloomberg.net. That's a closer look, one word, at Bloomberg.net. And follow me on Twitter at Arthur Levitt, one word. This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt.